Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 26. And so if you want to turn in your Bible or whatever copy of the scriptures you brought, um, you can do that. Um, I had somebody ask me last week, does it distract you if someone uses an iPad or an iPhone? No, I don't care. Just look at the verses. I don't care if you have version. I don't care which version you're looking at. I'd love for you to have a copy of the scripture. If you don't have one, we give Bibles out. And so they're over there. They're the old school ones with paper pages, but they're over there. Um, if you brought your own scroll, I'm cool with that too. Okay, just love for you to have a copy of the scripture so you can see what's happening around the passage as we look at it together. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 26. I'm starting verse 19 in a moment. Let me pray for us, and then we'll open up the, the scriptures together to get right to the passage. Father, I come before you, and I pray um, that you would speak to us. Show yourself our Father. We you knew the Father's Day message last week, and uh, talking about the fathers that we're supposed to be to reflect your love. Will you just wrap your arms around us today? Show us your love. Show us your grace. Uh, discipline and rebuke those of us who need that draw us to repentance father if there are any that don't know you i pray that today would be a day of salvation i pray for church people that would be too proud to say that they don't really know you as savior that they just been doing church that you'd convict their hearts today and draw them to you that we wouldn't let them miss uh, a real relationship with you because we don't want to talk about those kinds of things and father i pray for those of us who need encouragement too uh, those of us who need healing those of us who need um any words that, that would lift our faces to you, God, that you'd be the lifter of our souls this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Acts chapter 26, verse 19 is where we're going to be. We've been doing this series called Movement since we've been out of the series for a little while. Let me remind you why we call this series Movement. It's because the book of Acts is actually about the local church, which is God's hope for the world. It's his plan A for reaching the world for Jesus Christ. There is no plan B. The local churches, what we see here, we call it Southbridge. And some churches call it, you know, Providence or what a Covenant Church of something or whatever different Summit Church and Vintage 21, all these different churches in town. Those are local churches. It's a group of people gathered together to bring glory to God through worship to then scatter to demonstrate the gospel and share the gospel in every sphere of influence they have. And in the first century, it was a movement of God. Now, over the years, we've tried to make it into other stuff. Try to make it a political movement. Try and get our guy in office. We've tried to make it a moral movement to clean up society. We've tried to make it a philosophical movement where we can discuss all the latest ideas. We've tried to make it all kinds of different stuff that it's not. The church was intended to be A group of fully persuaded people, fully persuaded by the gospel, that come together, worship God, bring Him glory through that, then scatter throughout the city, wherever they're at, and wherever they're at, that's their platform to open people's eyes to who Jesus Christ is through their lives and through their words as a witness, Acts 1-8, wherever they're at. And that's what the church was. And what it was was people that were fully persuaded then living out what the the logical conclusion of that is, their faith and their daily life. And we've seen it from Acts chapter 1 to now Acts chapter 26. And we've been focusing in on lately this church planter named Paul. He goes around, he starts churches in different cities. He preaches in the synagogues, he goes to the marketplace, he's living out his faith. And what we saw with Paul is he was at one time a skeptic. And he moved from being a skeptic, and he was so skeptical he wanted Christians to be killed, to then being interested as God got his attention, then converted, and not only converted, but then fully persuaded. And what's happening in Acts chapter 26 is that Paul, because of his faith, has been arrested. He was found innocent in Acts chapter 23 and chapter 24 and chapter 25, but he's been sitting in a prison for two years. And every once in a while, he gets called out to say something to some officials. The last Roman official that called him out was a guy who's a materialist, and by that I mean he thinks everything's about here and now. And his name was Festus, and he couldn't understand all this resurrection talk and why Paul would live his life the way that he does. And so he asked the king of the Jews, so it's a Roman official, now he gets the king of the Jews, Agrippa, who's a hedonist. By that I mean he lives for pleasure. And he's in an incestuous relationship with his sister Bernice, that's his wife, and he comes in to evaluate what Paul's saying. And so what Paul does is he puts them on trial. 
and basically confronts them with, what are you going to do about Jesus Christ? It doesn't matter what you do to me. What are you going to do about Jesus Christ? And what he's been telling so far through Acts chapter 26 is about his conversion experience and the vision he received, which was a commission for him to go and be God's witness. And then we pick up where he's talking to Agrippa here in verse 19. So then King Agrippa, he says, Acts chapter 26, verse 19. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, the commission that God gave me, what he wants me to do with my life. First, to those in Damascus, because that's where he heard about Jesus. So he starts where he was at. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. And so he's living out Acts 1.8. And so where he's at and where he starts at, he tells people about Christ. And then he goes to the next place. He tells them about Christ. He goes to the next place. He tells them about Christ. He says what he preached. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That's why the Jews seized me. They've been claiming this because Paul had defiled the temple, which he hadn't, and the charges actually changed throughout the different trials he's been on. But he's saying this is why, because I was preaching repentance. I was preaching that they had to turn to Jesus Christ. I was preaching that all the prophets and all the Old Testament pointed ultimately to Jesus, and they didn't want to deal with Jesus. And so they had me arrested in the temple courts. They tried to kill me, but I've had God's help. And we've seen this. And we saw Paul's mentor, who's not a Christian, a Jew, stand up before the Sanhedrin and say, if you, if you try to resist these guys, you're fighting against God if God's behind this. And so even if you kill Paul, God's still going to fulfill his mission. And Paul's had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and I testify to anyone who will listen to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, the Bible, that Christ would suffer. And as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus, that Roman official, interrupted Paul's defense, said, you're crazy. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Spending too much time in the Bible. I'm not insane. Still respectful. Most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable, and he's really appealing to King Agrippa. He says, the king is familiar with these things and can speak freely to him. I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Christianity, Jesus Christ was crucified in public. When he rose, he appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses, plus other people that he appeared to. There are more than that, the amount of people that he appeared to. And now at this point in this passage of Scripture, Christianity has been being preached for three decades. And it's not like a cult where like only the leaders know the secret truths of what you're supposed to know to really know God. It's not like that. That's a cult when you see that kind of stuff. Christianity is a message that's given to each follower of Christ. Each one has access to the scriptures. Each one is able to then proclaim that message. So this is what I'm doing in the corner. King Agrippa knows this. And then he says to King Agrippa, who's king of the Jews... King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? If he says no, the Jewish people aren't going to follow him. If he says yes, Paul's saying, then you've got to believe in Jesus Christ because they all point to Jesus Christ. And he says, I know you do, Agrippa. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? You can persuade me? Paul replied, and here you see his heart. Short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. And it's like he looks down at his hands, except for these chains. Yes, I want you to be persuaded. I want you to become what I am. And you know what I am? I am fully persuaded. 
That's what we're talking about today, is being fully persuaded for Christ, and it's being persuaded by God. It's not being persuaded by Paul, it's not being persuaded by your neighbor, it's not being persuaded by me, it's not being persuaded by some person. It's that God persuades us, and he persuades us by sending his son, Jesus Christ. He persuades us with his lavish love. He persuades us in various ways. He persuades us through his spirit, he persuades us through his word, he persuades us through circumstances. Are you fully persuaded? And just think about persuasion. It's the idea that you come to a situation, you think you know uh, some certain circumstance or right truth, and then you realize you're wrong. And so you change your mind. When's the last time you were persuaded? Maybe you walk on a car dealership, car lot, and you were just looking, and you drove away with a new vehicle. At some point in that encounter, you were persuaded. Or you ever, you're just kind of wandering around, maybe at the mall at a kiosk, or you're here in Briar Creek, you go into Verizon store, or maybe it's the Sprint store or the AT&T store. You don't need a new cell phone. You just want, what are the new gadgets that are out there? And you walk away with a two-year contract. <laughs> you were persuaded. At some point, you're persuaded. Or some of you have had this experience where you meet a person. You ever meet someone and you don't like them? And then you realize you were wrong about them. And you become friends. Or maybe some of you have gotten married. Some of you, that's your story when you met your spouse. You didn't like your spouse when you met them. You didn't want anything to do with them. Something happened that you said yes. I'm not asking if you like them today. I'm asking if you, at some point, you said yes. You were persuaded in that process. Probably the classic example of persuasion is what marketers do to us in our society. They get paid a lot of money to figure out how to persuade us. Billboards and advertisements and pop-ups on Facebook and whatever website you go to and all that, all that stuff that's other. TV commercials are kind of the classic. And the big daddy of TV commercials, infomercials. Can I be candid with you how I feel about infomercials? I'm a skeptic. Whenever they come on, I don't care what they're selling. Knives, exercise equipment, diet pills, some towel that'll absorb a small lake, whatever it is. I usually am thinking, that's junk, that's a waste of time. You know what happens? If I watch one, which I have, and so have you, so don't judge me. If I watch one, about a minute in, I'm going, I need one of those. Like, how has my life gone on so long without this, whatever this is? And so I'm just asking, I'm waiting, you know, when do I order? I've got to order now. How much does it cost? Like, you're, mentally I'm engaged. So I've gone from being a skeptic to being interested. And what happens is some people, you buy this stuff. Maybe you're one of the 80 million people that owns a George Foreman grill or a Bowflex or a ShamWow or an As Seen on TV, whatever it was that's out there. And, you know, you know we know the products that are infomercial products. And so maybe you have one. Or maybe, have you ever thought about the people that actually give testimony on these commercials? You've got to buy this bracelet, you'll never fall down. You've got these glasses, there's no more glare, whatever the different product is that's out there. And they're actually putting their face, their reputation, all of their, their lives behind this because they think it's going to help you in your life to make your life better. And then I started to think about this week how a lot of us, the way we follow Christ is very similar to how we treat infomercials. There are some people that are skeptics, like I am when I think about uh, an infomercial in general. And some of you are skeptics of Christianity. Some of you are skeptics of the church. You don't think Jesus really died and rose from the dead. You don't think that God really exists. People just, they can't deal with reality. You think the church is just a business. You think it's some kind of scam or whatever it is, you're a skeptic. And there are some people they're like me when I first start watching the commercial. You're interested. Those are the people that they come to church. Maybe you come to church once a month or maybe not even that often. And you say you believe in God and, and, and you really think that you're a follower of God, but there's, there's no evidence of it. There's been no action taken. And so every once in a while what will happen is you'll think, I need to get connected with God's people. I need to study the Bible. I need to be more committed to God. But let's be honest, you don't actually do it. 
And so it's like the person that watches the commercial and thinks, oh, I need one of those, but you don't actually call. They don't actually purchase. Then there are people that have experienced conversion, and so they'll talk about how then when they were 12, they had this experience at some camp or at Awana or they walked an aisle or raised their hand or did something. When they were baptized, they'll give that experience, but you don't see evidence of it in their lives today. It's like the person who buys a ShamWow, and it's great. They wash their car with it probably for the first couple months. Now it sits in a bucket in the top of their garage collecting dust, and when they get their car washed, they drive through a drive through car wash. That's the person who says they have faith in Jesus, but their faith doesn't actually make any difference in their lives today. Then there are people that you meet sometimes, they're like a walking billboard for Jesus Christ. They're the kind of people, they're telling other people about Jesus. They're his witnesses. They're the kind of people you know they've been with Jesus, like we've seen in Acts. They're the kind of people that you know that they pray. Whether you ask them to or not, you know that they're praying. You know that they've communed with God. You can sense God's presence in their life. Maybe you don't know what words to use to describe it, but you know what those people are? Those are the fully persuaded. Those are the people who love God with all of their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. It wasn't because some guy gave a spiel about Jesus and they decided they were in. God persuaded them. He is the persuader. He does it through his son, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says that he gave his son. If he's going to give his son for us, how much is he going to take care of us? He loves us so much. It's a picture of his lavish love. And so we don't do it because he's a cosmic killjoy. He's trying to make us do stuff in heaven. We realize what he's done for us. And so then we are persuaded to give our lives to him. And we love him with everything we are, with all of our thoughts. So the way we think is impacted by being persuaded. With all of our heart, our passions, our affections. It's not a duty. It's because we love him. All of our soul, all of our strength, that's everything that we do. How we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we use our lives, how we leverage our platforms. It's all because we love him, because we've been persuaded by him. So are you one of the fully persuaded? If not, what would it take for you to be one? It's a good question to ask yourself, because you think about what God uses. God uses his word. God uses his spirit. God uses circumstances. Sometimes awesome circumstances, a victory, something good happens in your life and you realize those blessings are coming from God and it draws you to him. Sometimes tragedy, sometimes pain. C.S. Lewis famously is the one who said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts to us in our pains. He says it's God's megaphone to rouse the sleeping world. And so what would it take for you to be fully persuaded? Because what we see in this passage of Scripture are two lives. One of a man who's fully persuaded. One of a man who knows that God's trying to persuade him and won't, won't take it. Won't go. Makes no decision, which is a decision. And what we see is that those who are fully persuaded give evidence, give proof of God's worth. See, the fully persuaded life is a life that proves God's worth. All of our lives, in some way, prove what we think that he's worth. But the fully persuaded life is a life that proves God's worth, that he's worthy of everything. He's worthy of all of our time, all of our affections, all of our emotions, all of our mind, all of our resources, all of who we are. He's worthy of all of it. And the fully persuaded life demonstrates that, gives evidence of that, gives proof of that. They're persuaded. The word persuaded is used seven times to describe Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. Each time it's about his evangelistic ministry, trying to persuade other people to come to Christ. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they stone him, sometimes they flog him, sometimes they throw him in prison, sometimes they slander him. Sometimes whole regions of the world come to Christ. But in every circumstance, what we see is that Paul is fully persuaded. And what he does in this passage is he's trying to persuade Agrippa. He says, look at my life. Go back up to verse 19. In verse 19, the thing he points to is his obedience. 
says, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision. Now, if you have a copy of the Bible, you can go back and see the vision. You can read about it in verses 13 through 18 in Acts chapter 26, right above where we're at right now. The vision was Jesus Christ taking from being a skeptic to being interested, to being converted, to being fully persuaded. And what ended up happening was that he was then given a commission or a mission for his life. If you remember when we were in Acts chapter 26 before, that mission was to open their eyes. Open the eyes of anyone you come into contact with, Paul, to Jesus Christ. Open their eyes from darkness to light. Open their eyes to my love for them. Open their eyes to how I changed their lives. That's your commission. And Paul says here, I was not disobedient to that. Well, some of us, we, we all ask God, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Let me challenge you with this. Don't ask that question unless you're really willing to obey it. Because what if he says to you, like he said to Paul, I want you to suffer for my name. What are you going to say? I just wanted to know, just wondering, I'm going to kind of go with my plan now. <laughs> or what if he says like the rich young ruler, sell all your stuff, give it to the poor. Or what if he says like the woman caught in adultery, stop sinning, go and sin no more. Are you really willing to obey it? Don't ask unless you're willing to obey. And what Paul is saying here is, I was not disobedient to the vision. The vision was, you're going to suffer for my name. You're going to open their eyes to Christ. You're going to be my witness. That's the vision. And I told you when we were preaching that passage, sometimes I get people to come to me and say, you know, pastor, what should I do? Should I work at this company or that company? Should I do these? What do you think I should do with my life? And I usually say, I don't know. But I do know Acts chapter 26 verse 18 says that wherever you're at, you're supposed to open people's eyes to Jesus Christ. And so if you're an IT director, and whatever company, whoever you come into contact with, whoever is in those cubicles that you oversee, and whoever you're servicing, and they're a client, or they work at your company, and you're to open their eyes to Christ. And if you're a stay-at-home mom, that's your platform. Open those children's eyes to Christ. And if you're a doctor, open your patient's eyes to Christ, open your co-worker's eyes to Christ, open other doctor's eyes to Christ, and the nurse's eyes to Christ, and the family members who come to visit the patient's eyes to Christ. And if you're a teacher, open your students' eyes to Christ and their parents' eyes to Christ and the other teachers you come into contact eyes with Christ and the people who live in your neighborhood's eyes to Christ, whether you live in Briar Creek Country Club or you live in the Preserve Apartment Complex or you live in whatever neighborhood around here in Wake Forest and Holly Springs, wherever you're at, that's your platform. You open their eyes to Christ and whatever job you do, whether you're an executive or whether you're a janitor or whether you're a bus driver or whether you're a police officer, you open their eyes to Christ. That is your platform. That is your mission. Are you obedient to the mission? Paul's saying, do you want to see, you want to be persuaded, Agrippa, look at my life. I was obedient. You see Christ in my life. My life gives proof of God's worthiness to me, and he's worth my life. And he talks about how he obeyed in verse 20. Go to the next verse. He says, first to those in Damascus, because that's where I was at. That was my platform. I tried to open their eyes to Christ. And then to those in Jerusalem, I went there, and then all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, it follows Acts 1.8. And so where I was at in Raleigh-Durham and then people in North Carolina, wherever I'd go, and then wherever I traveled around the world, wherever I went, trying to open their eyes to Christ. And what did he do? He says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance, proof, by their deeds, by their lives. So their lives should be proof of God's worth, of what? The repentance that's happened in their lives. What is repentance? A Bible term. I said all the time in the Bible, if you've been around church, you've probably heard repentance a lot of times. You see it in lots of places. You see uh, John the Baptist in the New Testament when he comes in before Jesus. He's the forerunner to Jesus. He's trying to open people's eyes to Christ. He preaches a message. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Repentance. Jesus, the first demand he makes of people in his public ministry. Matthew chapter 4, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near, depending on your translation. But he says repent. He's demanding repentance. 
Jesus starts his earthly ministry talking about repentance. He ends his earthly ministry talking about repentance. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 48, he says, he told them this. This is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead. He's talking about the Old Testament and the prophets, the Moses. He's talking about the Psalms. He's talking about Isaiah. He's talking about Jeremiah. He's talking about Ezekiel. He's talking about the minor prophets, the 12 guys that we don't know, remember their names. They're all in there. He's saying all that stuff, it points to Christ. This is Jesus speaking. It, says, it all says this, that the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And this sounds a lot like Acts 1.8. You are witnesses of these things, talking to his followers. You will then preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. And so it's our mission then to preach repentance, forgiveness of sins. It's our mission then to repent and live a life of repentance. So what does it mean to repent? A lot of people think that repentance means this. I feel bad about what I've done, whatever it is. Lied, stolen, had a bad thought, whatever it is. And then I ask God to forgive me. That is not, all capital letters not, that is not repentance. Part of repentance is feeling bad. There's godly sorrow. In spite of what pop psychology will tell you, that is healthy. You should feel guilt. You should feel shame. You've wronged the creator of the universe. You should feel bad. And that's healthy. And that should then lead us to repentance, which isn't just asking for forgiveness. That's confession. It's not bad, but it's not repentance. Repentance is actually defined in the text. The preacher, they should repent and turn. It's two ways to say the same thing. See, what we do when we sin is we've turned our backs on God. We're going our own way. And that can be towards some heinous sin, whether it's lustful or prideful or self-aggrandizing or whatever it is, or it can be sometimes that we just forget about God. So we're ignoring him, and we get distracted. Maybe we start deciding that we're going to live for this world. We're going to live for this place. We're going to live for our career, for our families, for money, for whatever that stuff is. It's called creation, and we've turned from the creator to the creation. Romans chapter 1 tells us how that's a huge mistake, and we all do it. And so what we have to do is repent. Repentance is that we turn from that. So we've turned to creation. We turn back to the creator. We've turned to our sin. We're turning back to holiness. We've turned into darkness, and we're turning back to light. You turn to anything that represents this creation, this is the wrong way, that we're going our own way, and we turn back to God. It's to, repentance is to reorient our lives, back towards Him. It's not just to say words. In fact, the text then tells us that it should be a lifestyle. There should be evidence of it, and then we prove it through the way that we live our lives. So that you would repent and turn, two ways to say the same thing, to God, reorient your life, And then you'd prove your repentance by your deeds. We'd see action. So, a guy who says um, that he gets caught having an affair on his wife, and he tells his wife, I'm I'm so sorry I did that, I won't do that again. And then he goes out with a girl the next night who's not his wife. That is not proof of repentance. Did he say the words? Yeah. But he didn't turn. Because he's still focused, he's still oriented that way. The, The corporate executive who's stealing money from the company who gets caught and then tells the board, I'll never do it again, it was a mistake, and here's all the things, and then he goes and he takes his corporate credit card and books a personal vacation. That's not evidence of repentance. The Christian who says, yes, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, and then you look at their life and you don't see Christ. That's not evidence of repentance. So you have to be able to see it. There has to be proof there. It's like I was was at a friend's house uh, last weekend with uh, my family and 
uh, my wife and my four kids, and we went over. We were celebrating the graduation of a, a young gal um, from high school. She's going to college, and her parents had invited us over for her graduation party. So they're members of Southbridge, and we went over there and took my wife, four kids. We trampled into their house and having a good time meeting their friends. They're introducing us to their friends and feeding us, and we're having a great time. And there are other kids that were there. And the other kids were all going up in the bonus room at their house. And in their bonus room is where they had their pets at. And so my kids wanted to go up and see the animals and be with the other kids. And so I went up with them to check out what this was like and saw what their pets were. They had two pets up there. One was a turtle. It was in a tank. Looked totally safe. And so thought everything was okay there. The other one was a ferret. Not a parrot. A ferret. Ferret is uh, like a weasel, which I was told would be more complimentary than comparing it to a hamster. To me, I think it looks like a large and long hamster, but whatever. It's a furry, long animal if you've never seen one, and a pretty mild-mannered thing. In fact, it was laying there in this swing like this, and kids were running around screaming, and I thought, he's got to figure it out. Like, that's good right there. And so he's sleeping. Everything seems okay. He's in a cage. I go downstairs with my wife, an adult, and I have adult conversation. I leave my kids up there. But there's just some parental instinct every once in a while that you think, I need to check on them. And so I thought, I looked at my wife and said, I'm going to go check on the girls. I go upstairs. All the, the, somebody let the ferret out. I don't know if it was one of my children or if it was somebody else's child. I will take the blame if we need to. I probably, but anyway, what ended up happening is the ferret got out. It was hiding for its life underneath the turtle tank. All the kids are surrounding the ferret and its little pink nose is like sticking out and moving like crazy. And he won't come out of there. I don't know what happened before that moment, but he decided to pop out. And he jumps up on the leg of this teenage boy that was in the room. He didn't want anything to do with the ferret. So he, like, shoes it off. He goes back up against the wall. And the ferret's running around. Everybody's freaking out, not knowing if they should grab it or not. And then it starts to head towards its cage. And it seems safe, and everything's going well. Until it notices my seven-year-old daughter, Ava. Ava's standing there, and for some reason, the ferret who I've been told they're kind animals, they're mild-mannered animals, they don't bite. It goes into attack mode and starts chasing my daughter. She starts screaming and running. It's prancing towards her, pouncing, whatever ferrets do, and it's going after her. And it was not a highlight parental moment for me. I started laughing. <laughs> she's, and I'm like, I'm looking down, I'm laughing, and she's like jumping on couches over beanbag chairs, this thing. And there's a whole bunch of people in the room, but for some reason it wants her. And so it's running after her. And then I realized she's screaming, her face is turning red, and she's really scared, so I felt bad, felt guilty, and so I was like, I'll go get the ferret. So I go over there to pick the ferret up, and it starts biting at me, and so I jump back. I'm trying to hold it back by my bottom of my shoe, and it reaches around my leg and bites the back of my leg, draws blood. And I start running around like a seven-year-old little girl, and I'm not kidding. I was, I, I was just instinctual. It bit me, and I was like, ah! And I started running. I looked over. The junior high boy is laughing. He's leaning up against the wall laughing at me. So now I'm humiliated. The ferret stops chasing me, and it goes over. It jumps on my two-year-old daughter who's on a beanbag chair, and I see it grab a hold of her calf, and it's like pulling her calf on her leg. Now I'm mad. So now I go over, and I grab the ferret by the neck, grab it by its body. I yank it away, and I'm taking it over to this cage. And right when I turn, there's the young lady who just graduated. She walks into the room. Her pastor is now strangling her pet. She didn't see the other part of everything that happened. She comes up, grabs the ferret from me, takes it away, I apologized later, and I think we're okay. If you had told me, when I went up the first time into that bonus room, this is a great guard animal. This is a really, they bite. You know, you got to watch out. I was told afterwards, this ferret doesn't bite. And I was thinking, it bit me. I know, it bite. It only went after people in my family. So maybe it only bites leers. Maybe it just goes after their blood. I don't know. 
Before that, I would have never thought that a ferret was a scary animal. I never thought it was an attack animal. But I saw, and now I had evidence. And the same in Christianity. Don't tell me you walked an aisle. Don't tell me you were 12 years old. Don't tell me about Awana. Let's look at your life. You have Christ? Let's see him. Where is he at in your decision making? Where is he at in your relationships? Where is he at in your thinking? How do you use your job as a platform for him and for his glory? How are you living out Christ? Is it Christ in my life? Is it Christ in my hope? Is it Christ in my prayers? Is it Christ in everything that I do? Then we see the evidence, the proof of repentance. And do you know what that looks like to people that don't have Christ? That looks crazy. Apart from God's intervention and his persuading in their lives, they will think you are a fool. So I'm not saying that your life is so attractive then that they're all going to just bow down and begin to worship because of that. What they do is because their view of the world and your view of the world are so contrary that one of you is crazy. Either you that are fully persuaded and live your life for Christ or they because they live their life for here. And that's what happens to Paul in this passage next is he's told he's crazy. Look at it. What ends up happening is the Jews hate him because of this, because he's preaching repentance and that you live a life like this. That's why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. They hated me because I was forcing them to decide what to do with Jesus. But, contrast, I've had God's help. And God's the one who empowers us. God's the one who enables us. God's the one who gives us the words and the moments, the peace during the trials. That's what he's done with Paul. And he's done it to this very day, he said. And so I stand here and testify to anyone who will listen. I'm saying nothing beyond what the Bible says. That Christ would suffer and rise from the dead. He'd proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And at this point, Festus the materialist, and by materialist I don't mean he likes nice stuff. That's probably true of him too. But what I mean is he thinks it's all about the stuff you can touch and see. It's the here and it's the now. Festus tells Paul, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. There's a fine line, Paul, between being a genius and being nuts. You went over the line. You've been reading the Bible too long. You are crazy. And that would be true if you thought everything was about here and now. And you looked at Paul's life, and Paul used to live his life like everything was about here and everything was about now. Now he disguised it with religion. But it was all about his family, really. And it was all about his reputation, really. And it was all about his position and influence, really. And he talks about that in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, had a good family. The people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, it's my family, a Hebrew of Hebrews, it's all about my family. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, my position. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Those are my accomplishments. That's what I live my life for, here and for now. But, contrast, it's always a contrastive word in the scriptures, but something happened. He was fully persuaded. But whatever it is of my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, accounting language, everything that I thought was gain, my family, my reputation, my positions, I now shift all that stuff to the loss column. Why? What is more, I consider everything a loss. Everything in life, everything on this earth is lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And I want to know Christ. And I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know Christ and his sufferings. He goes on and he says, I just want to know Christ. And I press on towards the goal, which is to know Christ. Earlier he said in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ. That means as long as I'm here, to live is Christ. To die is gain. How do you say to die is gain? Because when I die, I get Christ. And he's the prize. He's what I'm going after. 
And that's why it appears crazy to everyone else. Because I'm not living for here, and I'm not living for now. Now, some people will tell you, if you follow Christ here and you're wrong, uh, well, you'll have a better marriage and you'll have better finances and all those types of things, and, and it's, it's good anyways. Something Paul says. Somebody who's fully persuaded. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that if we're wrong about Jesus and we're wrong about the resurrection, we are to be most pitied. Because we have a false hope. And you're doing everything, you're living your life here about what's going to happen in eternity because that's what, that's what he's referring to is people that are doing that. Not what, he doesn't have a concept for what we're doing many times in the American church. He's thinking, well, you're living your whole life on this earth for what's happening there. You're, you're hopeless then. And that's what Festus is saying. You're crazy. You're insane. You're going to give your life up? And so for Festus, he's kind of contemplated this moment. What am I going to do? I'm not losing my job. I'm not losing my money. I'm not going to do, lose my position for this stuff you're talking about. That's crazy. Because if that's your worldview, if that's how you look at life, if you're a secularist, if you're a humanist, if you're a materialist, if you're a hedonist, that means this, that you think everything's about people. People are generally good. And whatever we can do to move the ball forward with people, then that's what we'll do. Or a materialist, everything's about here and now. Or a hedonist. A hedonist is everything's about the pleasurable experience, the next pleasurable experience. These views sound familiar? Academic titles for stuff that we see every day, all the time, and many of us live. But if you're what John Piper calls a Christian hedonist, or what Paul is saying is that my delight is ultimately in Christ, that's where pleasure comes from, that's where joy comes from, that's where peace comes from, then I live my life, everything's about Christ. And that looks crazy to the secularist, to the hedonist, to the humanist, to the the materialist. Because you're willing to give up all this for that. And what also looks crazy is if you claim to believe this and you live like that, no categories for that in the, in the Bible, and that's crazy from God's perspective. Think about it. If we believe genuinely the stuff that Paul says here, then we'd live like Paul, because he's just living out his faith to this logical end. But many of us claim to believe what Paul believes and then live like Festus or Agrippa, and that makes no sense. That's crazy. To claim that God died for us, and then think about how we practically live sometimes. We kind of give him a nod. Hey, what's up, Jesus? Pray in the morning. Maybe. Read our Bibles. You gave your life for me, and I barely acknowledge you in my life. That's crazy. Or, as Christians, we say that the Bible is God's word. Genesis to Revelation, it's God's revelation to us, speaking to us. Isn't it crazy if we think that the creator of the universe has spoken to us, and we don't read it? That's crazy. It's crazy to take some of the things that we do believe from the Bible, we say we believe as Christians, and then to live the opposite way, to say we believe, take it our material stuff, that God's entrusted it all to us, it's not really ours. Whether it's the shirt you're wearing, shoes you have on, car you're driving, house you live in, money you have, whatever resources you have, to then use it all for us? That's crazy, because it's the exact opposite of what we say that we believe. That's craziness, that's insanity. It's crazy to say that we believe in eternity and to live our lives like everything's about here and now. That's crazy. Especially when you consider what the Bible teaches about eternity and that how we live here and now impacts how we will spend eternity. If that's really true, if we really believe that and then live like everything's here and now, that's craziness. And so what happens then is there are a lot of people that would think that, you don't want to say it because in church or whatever, and then you hear about people who live like Paul and you think they're crazy. No, they're just living out what they believe. It's like I read this week about a young gal, a Muslim gal in the Middle East. Somebody gave her a Bible. She's 18 years old. 
And she trusted Jesus Christ as her Savior. I was reading an article about how she trusted Christ. She was talking about how she was laying in a room, reading her Bible, and it was like God spoke to her from the pages, like, lit up. Like, the verse was just coming off the page to her that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. There's no other way to the Father but through Jesus Christ. And she places her faith in Jesus. So then she laid there for about 14 minutes, she said. And then went out into the living room where her father was reading. Her father is an imam. An imam is a Muslim leader. It might be the chief priest of the temple, but it's a Muslim religious leader, not just, a, uh, just someone who is Muslim. And she goes out there, her father, who's an imam, sitting there reading. She says, Dad, I want to tell you two things. First, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I think that Muhammad was demon-possessed. To which then, her father, the article said, responded by beating her so badly that her eyes almost popped out of her head, her face was black and blue, smashed her teeth in, she almost died. Fourteen minutes before she was willing to risk her life for Jesus Christ. How long have you known Jesus? That was her platform. Open his eyes to Christ. That's your dad. He's right out there in the living room. Open his eyes to Christ. Or you can read about missionaries throughout history. Stephen Neal writes a book called The History of Christian Missions. And he talks about uh, Christianity going into Japan. And around page uh, 161, he talks about this. He talks, uh, tells the story about how in the 1500s, Christianity from Europe was going into Japan. And how the emperor of Japan decided this is going to mess up our country. We've got to get them out of here. Banished the Christians from there. Not everybody left, but he banished them from there. In fact, the first martyrs, the European martyrs, didn't happen until 1617. And they were different brands of Christianity, but they had their heads chopped off. And there are all kinds of things that were done to Christians in Japan. People that had converted to Christ. Most of the Japanese, they converted to Christ. What they did is they crucified them. It was brutal in how they tried to end Christianity in that country. And uh, Neil tells a story about how in Yido, it's now Tokyo um, in Japan, was taking place there, is that one time they actually crucified upside down 70 Japanese Christians. They didn't die by crucifixion, though. They crucified them by the water at low tide so that the water would come up and drown them. Can you imagine being asked the question, do you believe in Jesus? If you say no, you get to go free. If you say yes, they will crucify you upside down and you will drown to death. Who would say yes? You'd be crazy if you think life is all about here and now. But if you think life is actually about then and there, that what you're doing here impacts there, then you'd be crazy not to die for Christ. Because like Paul says, for me to live is Christ. I'm proclaiming Christ. To die, I get to be with him. What are they going to do? Take my life? In fact, the Bible says that. You don't fear those who all they can do is take your life. Fear the one who can throw you into hell. Live your life for him. He loves you. He poured his life out for you. Don't deny him. It'd be crazy not to live for him if the things we say are true. And so what Paul wants to do more than anything is he wants to persuade Agrippa. Give your life to Christ. I don't care what you do to me. I want you to come to Christ. He puts them on trial. He responds to Festus' statement that he's crazy by saying, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. He's still respectful. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And then he addresses the king. He says, the king is familiar with these things, verse 26. The king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him, presumptuous somewhat. He says, I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. It wasn't done in a corner. Jesus is crucified. Rose has been being preached for three decades. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? King of the Jews, do you believe in the Old Testament that the Jews believe in? And he's just talked about how all of it points to Jesus Christ. He says, I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? So what Agrippa's doing here is what many people will do in American churches all across our nation. Here's the message. 
maybe even identifies with a portion of it, but will decide to make no decision. He's not repenting. He's not turning from his sin and from his relationship with Bernice and from his hedonism to God and to find pleasure ultimately in God and to be focused on the light instead of darkness and holiness instead of sin and Christ instead of this world. But he's not deciding to turn his back on God either. He's staying right where he was at when he started. No decision is a decision. He evades the question. You you think you're going to persuade me to be a Christian in such a short time? Paul replies, I don't care how long it takes. Short time or long? I pray, and it's God's work, it's not mine. I pray, God, that not only you, but all, probably looked at Festus, probably looked at Bernice, probably looked at all the other people that were there. Somebody that all, they become like me, become what I am. Which is interesting when you consider the picture, and then Paul looks down at his chains, and you think about it. In Acts chapter 25, we were told when Agrippa came on the scene, he came with great pomp and circumstances, with all their royal robes and all their garments, and the flashiness and the overwhelmingness of this. He's trying to overpower them with his presence. And then you've got Roman officials like Festus, and you've got other Roman officials that are there, and all their people that come with them. And then you've got Paul, who's a prisoner. A humble-looking man. We know that he doesn't have a great appearance. We see throughout the scriptures, so that description. Aren't you glad that that would be classified forever if you're Paul? But we, we know that of him. And he looks at these folks and says, I want you to be like me. Because what he's saying is, I want you to know what it's like to be bought at a price and your life isn't your own. And so you don't have to be bound by all this stuff. I want you to know what it's like to have real freedom. I want you to know what it's like to have real forgiveness. I want you to know what it's like to be adopted into the family and be a son of the king. I want you to know what it's like to be able to give your life for something in these 80 or 100 or 120 years that will impact all of eternity. And I don't care how long it takes, but I want that for you, Agrippa, and I want it for everyone else, except I don't want you to be in chains. And then Agrippa and Festus, they don't make a decision. And we see what happens in the verses after this. They try to figure out what to do with Paul. They make no decision about Jesus Christ. No decision about Jesus is a decision. It's a decision to stay right where you were at when you started. And so I want to ask you and challenge you not to be like that. You need to repent and repent today. If it's of sin, however heinous the sin is, murder, adultery, whatever your thing is, repent. Because you need to be, not for my sake, not for the sake that you might lose everything in your life from this earthly perspective, but you need God. Repent. Some of you need to repent. It's not such heinous sin. It's just I've been ignoring God. I've been having my back. I've been doing my own thing. I've been living for creation. I've been doing this thing. You need to turn, reorient your lives back to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. For you to live needs to be for Christ, and to die would be gain because you get to be with Christ. Don't be afraid to repent. You get Him. That's the prize. Are you convinced? Are you persuaded? Not because of what I'm saying, but because of what Christ has done. And some of you here play church, and some of you have been going to whatever, Bible studies and doing stuff, and maybe even go on mission trips. But do you know Christ? Would you be bold enough today to say, I, I've been playing games, I don't, I don't really know Christ. I know how to be a good boy. I know how to live. I know the language. I know the stuff about church and all that stuff. But do you know Christ? And if not, trust Christ today. I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment where I'm going to do this. I'm going to acknowledge my sin, acknowledge our sin. Say, believe in Jesus, believe in his death and his resurrection, and ask him to be Savior. And you need to do that if you don't know Christ. For the rest of us, you're fully persuaded. If you need to repent, we're going to give you a moment to repent. So let's just all bow our heads and close our eyes. And 
If you need to repent before the Lord, I pray that incredibly personally right now you'd repent. You'd be specific about your sin. You'd be specific about your ignoring God. You'd be specific about whatever you need to turn back to him with. And then your life would then prove his worth. You'd be fully persuaded and to see evidence of your repentance and evidence of a life of repentance by the way that you live your life for Christ, you'd be a fully persuaded follower of Jesus Christ. Some of you need to begin a relationship with Jesus. If that's you, would you pray these words with me right now as I pray them? And you can do it silently in your heart or mouth it or say it out loud while you sit in your seat or if you're watching online or you're in theater 14 across the hall. Just pray these words with me. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. That means I turn my back on you. And I believe your son Jesus died for those sins. And I believe he defeated death by raising from the dead. And I want Jesus to be my savior. And today, right now, I ask Jesus to be my savior. And if you just prayed that, I'd ask that if you're watching online, you'd email us if you're here physically at the theater this morning, that you'd mark on your connection card that say you trusted Christ and drop it in the offering box before you leave. You don't have to do that to become a Christian, but if you became a Christian, we want to pray for you. We want to help you. We'd love to give you any resources we can to help you. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that know you but need to turn to you, turn back to you. It's constantly part of our lives, constantly part of our walk with you. We blow it. We go our own way, and we are sorry. I pray for our church. We're sorry for times that we've made things about other than your son Jesus Christ, and we turn back to you. I pray that our country would do the same. I pray that the church in America would turn to you, would make... It about your son, Jesus Christ, and we repent. We turn to you. And God, I pray for our leaders, whether they're church leaders or their government leaders, whoever they are, that they would turn to you. I pray that you'd break their hearts. I pray for leaders in our church, that if there's any sin in their lives, that you'd have their hearts turned to you. I pray for people that just popped in today that may be solid Christians, but that have been ignoring you or have gotten dry in their spirituality or have gotten frustrated with their circumstances, and you're using those very circumstances to point them to you. And I pray you would do that and they turn to you. I don't know what your circumstances are today. And you may need to stay here and continue to pray. And I'll tell you, we're going we're gonna to sing a song in a moment. You have the freedom to stay in your seat, to continue to talk to the Lord. Maybe you need to pray not only for your stuff, but then you, you, God burdens your heart for someone else. It's in the same experience or in some other experience. And you want to keep praying. Keep praying. And then we're going to you know, tear down in a little while and all that kind of stuff. You stay here as long as you need to. We'll buy you movie tickets today if you need to. Okay, don't just feel a pressure to go with the crowd or go with whatever emotions you're having. If, if you're having an experience with the Lord right now, you're encountering God, we want you to stay right there and don't miss that moment. But if you want, you're going to be invited to be able to sing the song. The worship team's going to lead us uh, in singing a song in just a moment. I want you to know that God loves you. We love you. And we want you to not do what Festus did, not do what Agrippa did, and just leave here. And maybe you talk about the ferret story or being persuaded or persuasion in general or infomercials. And miss Jesus Christ. And realize what he's done for you and what he wants from you is he wants your whole life. So don't miss that.